Blog Talk Radio. Hello out there, and Happy New Year to all you Bedford and Sullivan folk. This is uh, the Converted Nestman, Sam Maxwell, and you are here with the Bedford and Sullivan podcast, the podcast that keeps the audience active listeners in the research process of the Brooklyn Dodgers TV series research process. And uh, tonight, I just wanted to get the new year going, talk a little Brooklyn, and uh, a friend of the show, somebody who's been on a bunch of times, sometimes uh, he, uh, he helps me out with the technological side of, the, of that, and that is um, the Brooklyn Trolley Bar, uh, excuse me, the Brooklyn Trolley Blogger, Mike LeColant from Bensonhurst. Mike, what's going on with you? Happy New Year. What's going on? Happy New Year to you, my friend. Well, I, I'm, I'm glad you could uh, join me tonight, and uh, I, I kind of just wanted to get right back into the swing of things of, of talking about Brooklyn and, and of course, uh, baseball and the Dodgers and the National League legacy. You know, you, you and I go all over the place, and for those who don't know, uh, Mike writes a, a, a blog titled The Brooklyn Trolley Blogger, uh, obviously a play on the Brooklyn Trolley Dodgers. And, and, Mike, you and I have a great saying, shameless plug away. Oh, shamelessly, I, I, you know, it, it's a way of life, uh, particularly to a new generation. The me generation was in the 70s. What do, we, what do we call this newer generation that just shamelessly plugs away? Is there a name for them? Millennials? Okay, good. Uh, the Brooklyn Trolley Blogger. Yeah, you're right. It is a play on the Brooklyn Trolley Dodgers. And the original intent was to be a uh, Brooklyn Dodgers-specific site. And then I said, why do that? Why limit myself? And I said, okay, this is going to be a a Mets site. And then I said to myself, why limit myself? Why do that? And then I said, I was going to be a baseball site. Then I said to myself, why limit myself? Why do that? And basically, you know, to sum this up, I'm a a Brooklyn-inclusive blog. Sports-intensive, but uh, my life and times, good and bad. In Brooklyn, I, I did graffiti, tasteful graffiti, murals, and you'll find it there. You know, occurrences around the neighborhoods, uh, just things that tickle my fancy, catch my eye, grab my attention, whatever it may be. Uh, so, if you want the skinny on uh, on Brooklyn through a Brooklynite's eyes, you know, uh, stop by or hop on the trolley, as I like to say. Well, it's interesting that you brought up graffiti right now because I actually just had uh, to to segue out. What's interesting about talking about graffiti on here is you and I always talk, we talk about the legacy, uh, not just not just of, of um, the Dodgers, but of, of course Brooklyn and and the era that we're discussing. And I think, weirdly enough, um, graffiti is kind of you know it, it's a child of uh, 1937 to 1957 inadvertently, you know. I mean, that it, it didn't take off, obviously, until basically uh, 10 to 15 years after the Dodgers left Brooklyn. But it's still uh, something interesting to talk about. Uh, and, you know, you and I always, uh, like we say, you know, we have a strip and we, you and I just go stripless. Uh, <laughs> but with um, the other day uh, in Two Boots, where I, a uh, pizza place I work in Health Kitchen, um, one of the originators of Wild Style, Tracy, came in, and he actually drew me something. So you, you were talking about uh, doing graffiti. Uh, you know, when considering the era uh, that we're talking about, 1937 to 1957, how would you say that graffiti 
uh, you know, was born out of those pre years before it actually took off. You know what? I don't know. You know, uh, I, I don't have an answer to that. All I know is that there's some pretty artistic people out there with a lot of time on their hands once upon a time, and they applied their art in the middle of the night, uh, and, and and you know, people got to view it the next morning on their way to work. Uh, that's the way I understood it growing up. So, uh, you know, I, you caught me off guard with that. I, I, I just don't know. <laughs> But what I can tell you is that, uh, you know, I appreciate the, the very tasteful pieces out there, you know, and, and you'll see it on my blog along with my shameless uh, and uh, my my pursuit of the perfect egg cream, you know, I call Brooklyn the Egg Cream Society. So you'll also mm. catch that on there. I just photographed two uh, murals in, in, in Southside uh, in Williamsburg, uh, one on South 2nd Street and one on South 3rd Street. Uh, yeah, there's some spectacular ones right over there. Yeah, so uh, I just put two uh, two murals on the blog on Saturday. So, uh, you know, just one more time, very shamelessly. Go to the trolley, check <laughs> them out. Uh, I'm not going to plug them here. You know, I- I'm sure they do well for themselves. Yeah, and I'm going to have to check them out right now. And, and what, oh, man, that is spectacular. Uh, for those who... Um, who can't see, uh, if you haven't gone to the Brooklyn Trolley Blogger as I have uh, immediately, uh, it's, it's this beautiful, beautiful mural uh, with a bunch of different Brooklyn aspects. You have, of course, the Williamsburg Bridge, which is right around the corner, and the view of the, uh, the new view with the Freedom Tower in the background. You have the Domino Factory that is unfortunately uh, starting to get a little bit renovated, but uh, the subway, which is probably, if I can enlarge this, the J train, yep, it is the J train, uh, you have the Williamsburg, what is that, the Williamsburg Saving Bank, or what, what's, the, what's it called, that specific building, it, I completely it forgot. Technically the Williams, it's technically the Williams, Williamsburg Savings Bank, but uh, it's being renovated for a different purpose, I mean, it hasn't been that in a long, long time, it was recently an HSBC bank, but I think it's currently under renovation for a different purpose altogether. And then, of course, there's the parachute jump at Coney Island and a staple of the Brooklyn skyline, and that's a water tower on top. Mike, that's a great one that you photographed. Uh, that, you know, I love the colors. They're brilliant. They pop out. It's very nice. I think it's very tasteful, tastefully done. Uh, I think it's a brilliant picture right there. So I, that's, a, that's a good, interesting segue back to the idea that you, you are Brooklyn and you've lived in many of Brooklyn Place. Um, but specifically, Flatbush and Bensonhurst come to mind. Now, we're going to start in Flatbush. Now, you've obviously discussed this, you know, and, and, and your, uh, your growings up and becomings uh, in Brooklyn before on this, uh, this podcast, but it's, uh, like I like to say, if you haven't heard it, it's new to you, and there's probably plenty of people who haven't heard it. So... Uh, right around the corner from where I currently live and from where I currently am is Holy Cross Cemetery uh, and also 35th and Snyder, where you happen to grow up. And um, if you could start basically there and some of your, your first memories of the neighborhood. Yeah, uh, we lived in uh, in several places before we settled there. And I think you said 35th. I, I lived on East 45th and Snyder. It was oh, one of the dead end blocks. Yeah, no, that's cool. Uh, it was one of the dead end blocks to Holy Cross Cemetery. So, yeah, once we finally settled there, 
uh, within short time, you know, we, we've been through this story. I, I was young, right around kindergarten, and uh, school was in session. Uh, but, you know, me being the age that I was, and for whatever reason, uh, most of the people on the block were home. And, you know, looking back on it, it's perhaps because they knew, they knew about what I'm about to uh, go through. Uh, so, in mass, the whole block just started heading up towards Snyder Avenue, and obviously they brought me along. Uh, and we just stood and, and, you know, the adults uh, with tears in their eyes crying, uh, nobody's saying much. Me not really understanding what what was going on, they all made me understand afterwards and through the years. Uh, but that was uh, shortly after Gil Hodges passed away in his funeral procession on his way to Holy Cross Cemetery. Uh and so, lo and behold, I, I, I was as close to him, you know, in, in a sense, uh, as I could have possibly been. He was in, quite literally, my backyard, right over the wall was Holy Cross. And, you know, I guess within a couple of hundred feet was, no, no, excuse me. Uh, I wasn't that close to his actual burial site. That's, that was on the Brooklyn Avenue side. But uh, and I ha- and I happen to yeah, and I happen to be two blocks away from that right now. Yeah, so you know everybody on my block, they were all uh, Met fans. Uh, I don't I don't recall not one Yankee fan outside of my father uh, on that entire block. So uh, you know that was that day, and like I said, it it, it was afterwards, and, and you know as the uh, the, the years went by as we went into 73 and 74, and certainly by 75, I had full understanding of uh, what went on that day. And, uh, vivid, very vivid memory. You know, like I said, uh, to see the adults cry as a, as a young child, and, uh, for no apparent reason, uh, to gain the understanding after the fact, it was a little, you know... Uh, I, I don't know. Uh, as you see, I'm I'm, I'm struggling no, for for a way to describe it. So uh, it was just so. It, uh, it, it it does show how uh, impactful of a day that was, and and not yeah. only just in in terms of understanding, uh, you know what you would uh, come to know and love as baseball, uh, yeah. but also just just understanding what Gil Hodges meant to Brooklyn, even at such a young age. I mean. Yeah. You know, and mm-hmm. and like like you said, just in a, only a couple of years, did you actually have like a serious emotional understanding of of what that was? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then uh, you know, you, you, you grow, you grow from there. I became a teenager, and lo and behold, I was bowling in Gil Hodges Lanes on Ralph Avenue. And as soon as you yeah. walked in on the left side, there was a display case with uh, one of his gold gloves and some other memorabilia. So, uh, you know, to be a Brooklynite, there was no escaping Gil Hodges. There's still no escaping Gil Hodges. His name is stamped all over Bedford Avenue. It's named after him. Right. Exactly. And, and here's an interesting segue. You uh, mentioned the Mets. You mentioned um, Gil Hodges and uh, a, a first baseman. And um, here is just 
how intertwined the Mets are in the legacy of of the Brooklyn Dodgers, especially. And and even though I think that they, uh, you know, from a from a standpoint of talking about the modern Mets, I think they need to uh, honor the memory of the New York Giants a little bit more than they do compared to what they do for the Dodgers. I kind of understand the wholehearted connection where the Mets kind of do remind you uh, more so of that of just just the aura of the Dodgers and, and their entire history than, than the Giants. Um, but but going uh, back to that, uh, you mentioned a, a Dodgers first baseman and a Mets manager, and um, I, I just recently heard an interesting uh, tidbit that uh, Keith Hernandez, first baseman of the 1986 New York Mets, um, his father, John Hernandez, was drafted by the Dodgers, and uh, while coming up in the minor leagues, unfortunately, uh, in in lights apparently um, is what I what I read, uh, which is interesting. I, I have to look that up as to whether it was uh, specifically, uh, you know, some random light or whether it was uh, a minor league nighttime in uh, you know something like 1940, 1941 or something. But anyway, um, he got hit in the the uh, the eye with a baseball, and his eyesight, let alone his baseball career, was never the same. And then he. Uh, basically dro- helped drive Keith Fernandez, for better or worse, to become the major leaguer than he was. Uh, it, it's just interesting uh, to hear um, the connection, the, the, the little intricate connections, other than people like Don Zimmer, other than Gil Hodges. Uh, John Hernandez, Keith Fernandez's father, could have potentially been a first baseman for the uh, the Brooklyn Dodgers, and because he didn't end up being a first baseman, and, and unfortunately his talent was kind of taken out because of his eyesight, um, Gil Hodges became a legendary first baseman for the Brooklyn Dodgers. How do you like that? I think it's remarkable. <laughs> uh, let's let's drive all the way down to uh, to Bensonhurst now. So, you know, I, I think I have looked it up on the map before. Sometimes I just randomly look at the Brooklyn Mets, um, if, if you're over here uh, at 45th and Snyder, let's say, and you had to move to Bensonhurst, how did that move go? How would you get there? Uh, well, you could take Bedford. <laughs> you could take Bedford Avenue all the way down to, uh, say, Avenue F, Avenue T, hang a right, and that'll take you right in. You know, that'll take you on the uh, – the southern, the southern border of it, but that'll bring you right in, you know. Anything above McDonald Avenue, between 14th Avenue and Avenue U uh, to 86th Street, you're in Bensonhurst. Right. So what kind of neighborhood is Bensonhurst? What, what's its makeup? What's its history? Well, uh, it, it's, it's flipped. Over the last 25 years, uh, you know, it's flipped. It's more... Asian now than it used to be. Uh, you know, Brook- Bensonhurst used to be Brooklyn's Little Italy. Uh, and, and when I say little, I, I mean, what, 170,000 people in this small little portion of Brooklyn. Uh, but, but now it's flipped, you know, and, and that's the way Brooklyn is. That's the way urban society is, you know. And now it, it's it's a different people's turn, so to say. Uh, you know, the Italians that are left here, they're somewhat isolated. Uh, you see the stores shutting down. Their children have grown. They've moved away. 
you know, so it creates the vacuum and, and people move in. And right now it's the Asian community that's moving in. And they're the ones who are establishing their families and establishing businesses. So you can expect to see them here. You know, they're here 25, you know, 20, 25 years now. Expect them for another 40, 50, 60 years before their children grow and have children and then they move out and those businesses start to dwindle down because, you know, they're going to retire. And then you'll see a different wave of people. That's just the way it is. That's the way it's always been. And right now it's Bentonhurst's turn to make another flip. You know, I don't think I realized it at the time, but there was one day where I took off work just to bike around Brooklyn, and, and it was interesting because I, I got down to um, uh, 65th Street and, and that boardwalk on the, you know, right when basically the edge of Bay, uh, Bay Ridge, uh, and you couldn't, see, you couldn't see the bay at all because it was foggy, and I actually got some really, really neat photos of, uh, of the uh, ocean liners sitting out in the fog. Uh, but then I, I started heading uh, east, and I came across what did look like, you know, kind of a Brooklyn Chinatown, or, or uh, you know, just I, I, unfortunately I I didn't I couldn't tell exactly what uh, Asian type it was in terms of all the writing and whatnot. But um, I guess I was going through either Diker Heights or Bensonhurst, like you like you were saying. Well, you could have been going through a portion of Sunset Park. If you were over by 7th Avenue and 8th Avenue and 9th Avenue, over uh, by the 40s and the 50s, uh, even the 30s and 20s, you know, that's a portion of Sunset Park. Uh, the original Brooklyn Chinatown, I might I might add. You know, uh, hmm. the wave into Bensonhurst is a recent development. They've been over in the Sunset Park portion uh, a little longer than that, you know. And people fail to remember, you know, the Chinese have been here for a long, long time. You know, they're the ones who built our railroad system. So, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you got a lot of people out there saying, where are these people coming from? No, 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 no. Don't be mistaken, okay? <laughs> Everything happens the way it's always happened around here. You know, I mean, many of them, some of my neighbors, they're flooding here from Chinatown in Manhattan. They own restaurants there, you know, but it's just too crowded over there. So they're coming here to spread out. Like people from Brooklyn go to Staten Island or New Jersey or Long Island to spread out, you know. So everyone takes their turn. It's, you know, step by step. It's a, it's a progression. Uh, it's uh, I always just get fascinated when I'm, I'm pulling up the the map of Bensonhurst. So I'm I'm seeing um, obviously you know you don't have to give away your exact location uh, <laughs> to our public, but looking at all the streets, you know you got 18th Avenue, 68th Street. Um, it, it, it's interesting. It's also called New Utrecht. Uh, uh, New Utrecht. Is that how you pronounce it? New Utrecht. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and and that's I believe uh, the Dutch background that um, uh, I, I think that if we had currently on the uh, the program the uh, Brooklyn Borough historian Ron Schweiger, who's been a friend of the show for a long time since the first episode, in fact, uh, I think he'd say that's got a little uh, Dutch history to it. Yeah, well, it, let's backpedal to Flatbush for a second. You know, uh, before Ground Zero took on a whole different meaning when it did, 
uh, Church Avenue and Flappish Avenue was, in effect, ground zero for the whole Dutch settlement of Brooklyn. Don't forget, Brooklyn, well, Brooklyn is, is Dutch. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, at the intersection of Church Avenue and Flappish Avenue is the first uh, Reformed Protestant Dutch church, uh, founded in 1650-something-something, uh, perhaps 1654. Mm-hmm. Uh, here in Bensonhurst, we have the second one, or the second oldest one. Uh, over now, the on building, the, uh, the, I was going to say that, that uh, the building is actually from 1797. Towns, however, like you said, what were, are incorporated uh, dating back to uh, 1650s. The, the actual graveyard, you're right. Yeah, so, so the graveyard, exactly. So you have plenty, you do have grave stones there that do date yeah. to into the 1600s. Have you have you ever been inside the gravesite itself? I actually have yet to be in uh, the gravesite. And what's interesting is that it's you know it's it's clearly a national landmark. I believe there's the the uh, uh, plaque outside the front, but it currently is not a an actual operating church. Well, I, I believe uh, no. the the building is 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 probably uh, uninhabited. Uh, well, the last time I was there, uh, I would say about four to five years ago, uh, it was active in the sense that there was volunteers there and there was activity on the premise. I don't know what the details were, but as far as, you know, holding mass or, or services, uh, yeah, you're right. I don't think they do that anymore. Uh, but it's so you're saying, you're, so you're saying that the... So you're saying that the building is at least open to making sure that it's it's not rat infested and and cleaned a little bit and the inside aren't being decrepit because I'd love to see what it looks like. That is absolutely correct. So there is activity going on there. Uh, it's being kept up. Uh, you know, you you may not get that impression from the outside, but yeah, it, it's being attended to. But like everything here in the land of capitalism, you know, where does that money come from? Uh, but my my point is when I did. Uh, you know, walk the 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 grounds. Uh, some of those headstones are, I mean, I mean, are just fascinating. Some of them dating back to the 1700s, bro. Uh, incredible. I mean, they're so weathered. Some of them you can't even make out anymore. Uh, but uh, just a fascinating little, you know, walk through history. I'm telling you, you got to do it. You have to. Oh, I definitely do. And the Holy Cross Cemetery over here, where Gil Hodges is buried. Is doesn't date uh, as far back, but you know you certainly get into the 1800s, right behind yeah. Gil Hodges, or or actually, excuse me, right in front of Gil Hodges, because I'm pretty sure he's buried on the inside part of of the grave as opposed to facing Brooklyn Avenue. But um, right across from it is an old Brooklyn Fire Department uh, mm-hmm. uh, grave, you know, for for probably the entire family actually, and uh, the first the uh, the first death on you know, out of the the whole family's uh, uh, ages, um, you know, dates before it was a uh, it was the city of Brooklyn, and I think it's it, it's written on the actual uh, tower. Basically, it's it's a stone tower with a, a fire, uh, you know, uh, uh, and middle-aged fireman basically at the top of it, and you know, it's the Brooklyn Fire Department, which no longer exists once it became. New York City, that became the, the New York fired up, the New York City, the FDNY, excuse me. Right. You know, I, I always say, you know, as somebody who's been to Europe, 
obviously we're talking about thousands of years of history over there, but they do such a great job of maintaining it. Uh, whereas here, I think we do a horrible job of maintaining our history. And I, and I mean that New York City specifically. Uh, and, and But if you know where to look, there's so many... Uh, so so many fingerprints of the past that that are you know right in front of us that the the city just does a piss poor job of promoting maintaining and and and, and you know advertising it right and especially in Brooklyn I mean uh, I remember I was seeing a <clears throat> one of the authors of the Dodgers and the Giants when they left. Uh, he wrote a book about when they were specifically like the last few years before they left. Um, and, you know, especially the Giants, you never really get their due in press when it comes to uh, them leaving. But uh, he was, I saw him talk at the Brooklyn Public Library about the book, and he was talking about Washington Park where the uh, original Dodgers uh, field was. And on on the grounds is uh, Washington Stone Cottage, basically, where he uh, cooped up during the, uh, the Battle of Brooklyn, I believe. And, um, you know, he, he said that, uh, you know, this is the kind of building that in Boston you'd have to pay $50 just to look at it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and I spoke with Kim. She was the curator there. And, and, and I talked to her, uh, you know, insofar as what's the city's deal with, on the one hand, they just totally neglect the Brooklyn Dodger history of that place. And where they want to, you know, promote the George Washington history of the place, even then they still so, they, they, they fall so far short of, like you said, something Boston would do. Which is fine, you know, but at the same time, I'm, I'm glad I don't have to pay $50 to look at it. But yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, it, it, I think that New York City has so many, so many things, and Brooklyn has so much um, that it, it kind of just becomes up to the local areas to take it on. You know, and, because, and it's not hard. You know, it's not hard to connect the dots either. I mean, you brought up the Battle of Brooklyn, Kings Highway. You know how it, how it got its name? That was the main supply route of the King's Army when we were still a colony. You know, so it, it, it morphed into King's Highway on the corner of Court Street and Atlantic Avenue. Right now it's a Trader Joe's, but that was a very important site in the Battle of Brooklyn, and it's commemorated there with a big giant bronze plaque on the side of, uh, well, what is now Trader Joe's, but it used to be a bank, mm-hmm. I think. Uh, I forgot which one. There's another marker over at the... Uh, at the uh, the post for veteran of foreign wars over on Ninth Street and Third Avenue, uh, which is under threat of, of being demolished in favor of uh, you know pre-K and things of that nature. Uh, and then you know you you move on and you know there's markers everywhere, and that house over there at Washington Park is one of them, one of the stops along the way of, of the Battle of Brooklyn, and you know. The city just fails to connect connect the dots. I mean, there's more placards and 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 site markers over at Fulton Landing, uh, where Washington eventually made his departure from. You know, long Greater Long Island. And, uh, and what but, that has to what it, what I think what that has to do with is the fact that that's probably the most visited 
of any you know Brooklyn area just because of the bridge and the view and the fact that people are walking across the bridge. I mean, yeah. you know, it's hard to get tourists to go all the way out to Grand Army Plaza and Prospect Park and walk around Park Slope. You know, they're not. They're, they're, you're generally doing that because you know somebody from Ohio who moved into Berkeley Place and and Seventh Avenue. Uh, it, you know, if we were a smaller, more thoughtful metropolis, guess what? We'd build a trolley from the Fulton Landing to Grand Army Plaza. That that is very true. Uh, um, I just want to let everybody know. Uh, uh, to those that are listening live, I don't believe you'll be able to listen to us after we go into the archive uh, time after the half hour is up. So in about a minute or so, we're going to wrap up uh, in terms of live talk, but Mike and I are going to stay on for a few more moments into the archives. And uh, Mike, uh, for all our live listeners, uh, what is your last word regarding uh, you know what we've been talking about the last hour, the last half hour, excuse me? If you embrace change and culture, Brooklyn is the place for you. Brooklyn will always be well, the there, coolest place exactly. on earth. It will always be the coolest place on earth. One in seven people in this country can trace their families back to Brooklyn. That is that is very true. And uh, all those out there, we, uh, we appreciate you listening on this uh, Monday night. Uh, you know, we just wanted to get the uh, the ball rolling with with the Dodger podcast again. Since I was a, uh, I definitely took uh, some more hiatuses than, uh, or is it hiatus? I don't know. But uh, I I want to do these up a little bit more uh, this year as uh, I continue to research this thing. So thank you very much, and uh, here come the archives. So for all of those listening on the uh, the podcast uh, archives, uh, thank you very much for listening this far. Uh, this far. And uh, Mike, you know, you were talking about the uh, the history. I always try to keep pushing people out whenever uh, um, I'm talking to tourists, especially in uh, you know my location where I work at Two Boots Health Kitchen on 44th and 9th Avenue. It's right there in Times Square, so you get a lot of people. And luckily, you know, like hotels. People are telling them, like, the best pizza you got to try near here, walk, walk a little further. It's only, like, four to five minutes farther than you would be if you were going to 8th Avenue where, you know, those, those uh, generic, more expensive pizza places are going to be. But anyway, I always try to tell them, like, if you have time, take the two train out to Grand Army Plaza because I don't think that um, Grand Army Plaza alone gets the, the, the credit for being such a magnificent arc. Obviously, it's got a lot of it takes a lot of cues from from uh, some of those those European ones, like uh, in Paris, the Arc de Triomphe. But I, you know, Washington Square Park. I don't think that Washington Square Park art can even compare to the grandness of of the uh, the Grand Army Plaza out in Brooklyn. You know, like I say, uh, you know, therein lies the problem of living in the shadow of Manhattan. Because any and every mayor, all they care about is Manhattan. So here in Brooklyn, you got to do your own homework. You got to do your own footwork. You know, and, and you got to do your own uh, investigative, you know, search for for what you really want to find. Believe me, you will find it. It's just it seems like the city's not going to help you. You know, so if you want the skinny, like I said, you got to talk to a Brooklynite. 
And I don't mean Becky from Kansas who moved here and, you know, seven years ago and all of a sudden calls herself a Brooklynite. I like I like I chose Ohio, you choose Kansas. That's that's, that's <laughs> I'd like to talk to psychologists about this one. Um the so so let's let's start there for the last few minutes of this podcast. Well, what is something that you don't think gets enough credit? What what do you think is not being looked at in terms of uh in terms of Brooklyn? Like you know, I'll, I'll stick with the the theme that I, I've been pushing: uh, connecting the dots. There's got to be a better way for this metropolis, and I do mean Brooklyn, to connect the dots and make people follow a path. Like the the, uh, the historical mile in Boston, you know, the red marker, follow the red path, and it'll take you everywhere you want to see. We need something like that here because there's just too much that goes uh, unknown or overlooked. I, 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 I had, and I'll say the fortune because I think anytime you get to meet people like this, it's kind of cool. I met Marty Markowitz when they raised the, or when they dedicated the flagpole at Barclay Center, the old Brooklyn Dodgers flagpole. Mm-hmm. I met him there, and I threw this at him. I was like, what are the chances of painting a blue line where the Dodgers 55 parade or down the venue where the Dodgers 55 parade took place? And he looked at me, and I think he pondered it for a second. But then he told me, that's over. That is done. And he turned around and he pointed to Barclay Center, and he says, this is now. This is what we have. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, I think it's unfortunately even you know he ponders it for a second, but I think that kind of is the negative aspect uh, of of how we lost the Dodgers and and kind of how we lost so many different monuments before uh, um, this National Register of Historic Places swooped in. Uh, the idea that you can't look toward look back in the past. This is how we lost. You know, going going back to uh, the graffiti. This is how we lost five points uh, on the seven yep. line in Long Island City. It, it, right. it, 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 and and when it comes to uh, nationally registering a historic places so they're protected from real estate guys, um, I think that we need to do a better job of not only preserving our pre-war history, but preserving our post-war history as well, and our cultural mm-hmm. history, and, and tearing you know that place down was, was destroying that. I think you, you always need the test case, and I think that the way that ended, you know, because of real estate, uh, that was ine- inevitable, but I think it brought to light that these guys, they need a stable an accessible venue place was. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So I, whereas, I agree. I don't know. So whereas tattoos were illegal once upon a time, you know, and and now they're recognized for being just phenomenal artists. Perhaps graffiti will follow suit. If you catch my drift. You know, I'm not trying to encapsulate everything in, in 
in one sentence like that. But I think and, and address- you know, I'm 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 not sure whether the MTA uh, has kind of looked the other eye, uh, you know, uh, turned the other eye, excuse me, and turned the other cheek, or whatever the phrase is. Clearly, I'm kind of escaping it right now. But uh, right across from where the site is is an old Long Island Railroad train, and that is being tagged. Uh, by people who, uh, with, with plenty of colors uh, at their disposal, as a tribute to Five Points, uh, or at least that's you know that's their tribute to Five Points. And, and what's also you know interesting about it is because all those train cars that had unbelievable tags on it in the late uh, 70s, early 80s, have all right. basically been scrap metal. Have basically been scrap metal at this point because the MTA was trying to protect their property. They didn't you know they, to them it still right. had to, even though. Even though to me, I think it should be an urban museum. To them, they were defacing property. But exactly, you know, I, exactly. Or at least they, some of those cars, at least some of those cars should have found their way into the transit museum we got in Borum Place in Skimmerhorn. Right. That's, right you know, exactly. That's another thing. But I, I'm glad you said what you did. Uh, let me regain my uh, train of thought here for a second. Ah, uh, because oh, I'm tipping my tongue a lot. <laughs> I'm sorry, man. Well, about about graffiti, about trains, about tagging. Yeah, there you go. That they probably are turning a blind eye. You know, because in in a lot of instances, nobody, it's never an issue until somebody complains. Right. Right? And then the knee-jerk reaction always, you know, follows. Or the PC reaction follows. Well, the reactive reaction always follows, you know, not until somebody complains. So when somebody complains, they're tagging up that, they're saying, oh, you know, you can't do it anymore. So they probably are turning a blind eye, as you say. Yeah, I hope that's the case. I mean, it doesn't look like the platform is being used necessarily for anything. It, it looks like maybe it used to be uh, an old stop or, or whatnot. But, um, uh, you know, going going back to five points, I, I, I'm not exactly sure the the complete history and how far back it goes. But as a Mets fan, you know, it was one of the first things you saw coming out of the tunnel. I mean, it, it, it is the the trip out on the seven line, if, if it's something you're used to, is a very, leaves an indelible impression in terms of, of you know, it, it's quite the journey through the city. And, and Queens has a lot of tags as well, you know, and the, there, there's a lot of graffiti along the, 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 uh, the seven line journey. And the first thing you saw was the five points. So, you know, how far back do you can you remember that being on the seven mile journey? Uh, a long time. Uh, a long time. Uh, I spent a full year working in Queens in that neighborhood back in the nineties. That was going on then. I can't really tell you how long before that. Uh, but you know, it, it was famous. So it's you know word got around, people knew about it. Uh, so it obviously made a name for itself. You know, but that's why you know that's why it's important to you. Captured it brilliantly. You I know you photographed it, and you know I do my share of photographing of graffiti when I see it and I want it, and I want to capture it on my blog, because they don't last. And in many instances, these are brilliant pieces, and they don't last, and you'll never see them again unless somebody documents that. Exactly, exactly, and uh, that's why I was happy that I got, you know, I got a great shot of 
uh, Mets graffiti in 2011. Um, and there was no escaping that, that. You know, in this city, real estate, there was no escape. Uh, that yeah. was literally an oasis. Yeah, it's it's very unfortunate, but uh, hopefully they they get another type of building because I mean, there's got to be some factory in Brooklyn that that they can figure out how to rent and, and tag the entire thing up. I mean, you know, maybe maybe in Williamsburg, maybe somewhere down into uh, Crown Heights and, and Bedford Stuyvesant at this point. Uh, well, I hope they get you know, that done. Perhaps you said the magic word. Think about who the pioneers of the new Williamsburg were. One of them were the Brooklyn Brewery. You know, he was there before any of these people. So yeah. perhaps it's going to take somebody who has, you know, a couple of million dollars at his disposal that he doesn't know what else to do with it, and he'll buy a building with that sole intention. Oh, all right, boys, let's tag it up because this is my hobby. You know what I mean? It's going to take a hobbyist mm-hmm. to buy one of those buildings and allow that purpose to take place. And hopefully that happens. Uh, this is how I'm going to transition out of this episode. Uh, we're going to we're uh, we're coming up on uh, roughly less than basically three minutes left before we should uh, should cut this up. But here we go. Let's uh, you know we we can not only talk about Mike Piazza but connect him within not only uh, the greatest catchers of all time but within uh, New York catchers as well. People who have uh, who have played not only on the National League side of things, but the American League side of things. Uh, New York Met Hall of Famer and also Baseball Hall of Famer and going to be wearing a New York Met on his on his uh, plaque, Mike Piazza. You know, having seen him play, where does he rank among the all-time New York great catchers? Amongst the all-time New York great catchers. Okay, it's a good thing you limited me to that. Uh, you have to put Bill Dickey into the conversation. Neither one of us saw him play, but he's a Hall of Famer. So you just you know have to include him into the conversation. Where he ranks, I'm not sure. Uh, in my lifetime, Johnny Bench is the best catcher, all-around catcher, defensively and offensively combined. He was the best all-around catcher I've ever saw, I've ever seen play. Uh, that said, Mike Piazza is by far, and I do mean by far, the best offensive catcher I've ever seen wield a bat. Uh, I mean, this guy, he could have hit baseballs through steel, lasers, man. Uh, I, I don't think I've seen, you know, people hit a baseball hard as hard as he did prior or, or after. Uh, I'm trying to think, and no one really comes to mind. Maybe, maybe, uh, uh, dude from the Marlins, Giancarlo, uh, Giancarlo Stanton. Maybe. Mm-hmm. Right. Maybe. Uh, but, you know, in my lifetime, New York, uh, I saw Thurman Munson play. Uh, I thought Jerry Grody of the Mets was a brilliant defensive catcher. I saw Gary Carter play as a younger player, and then I saw him play with the Mets. Uh, Jorge Posada hit the most home runs of the 2000 decade. So, you know, New York has had their share of good, if not very, very good catches. Uh, defensively, Jerry Grody is the best defensive catcher in my lifetime that's played in New York. Piazza is obviously the best offensive 
uh, catcher that I've witnessed here in New York. Well, Mike, we're going to get cut off soon, so I'll just leave this. John Stearns, I didn't get to see him, but, I, you know, he, he honorable bench. <laughs> John Stearns, you know, he's, he's, a, he's in my – John Stearns would rank on my list of all-time favorite Mets ahead of Mike Piazza. So I'm glad you brought well, him Mike, Mike, before we get cut off, I just want to say thank you. Uh, it's been a great show, and I appreciate you coming on. Man, thanks for having me, like always, bro. I appreciate it. Absolutely. That's our show, everybody. Thanks for listening. Take care.